You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On the podcast this week, we take a look at the campaign in the UK just days ahead of the vote, and we hear from Boston about the US presidential election. Have the Orlando killings changed the tone there? And as Venezuela plunges deeper and deeper into crisis, we ask what the food riots and shop lootings mean for the oil-dependent regime of President Maduro. With just days to go before the UK votes on European Union membership, we are seeing politicians and papers launching their final appeals, notable uh, cri de coeur from The Guardian this morning. But Dennis Staunton, our London editor, am I right to sense a different tone in the campaign following the death of Joe Cox? It's a little bit different, uh, but uh, but not not entirely different. Uh, the campaign stopped for about three days uh, after Joe Cox was murdered. And then when it came back, uh, there was a, a more muted tone to it. But the issues are very much the same, so that uh, you know, the Leave campaign is still banging on about immigration very much. And the Remain campaign is banging on about the economic risks of leaving the European Union. Uh, there was uh, a bit of a tangle at the beginning of the week over Nigel Farage and the, uh, the UKIP leader and this poster which uh, he had put out, which uh, it was a picture of a lot of Syrian refugees at the Croatian border. And uh, and the headline was Breaking Point. And this was a very controversial poster. And uh, he found himself uh, being denounced not only by Remain campaigners, but also by some people on the on the Leave side. But he's been saying today that he hasn't toned down his uh, campaign at all. And I think uh, that you'll probably find uh, there's a, a big debate this evening at Wembley Stadium in front of uh, 6,000 people. And uh, I think that you know, because you're not going to have a Nigel Farage type figure there, uh, you might have the uh, tone being a little bit more polite. But I still think that that uh, essentially the country is very, very divided. And it really is divided on this choice, which matters to you more, immigration or economic stability. Now, Farage, I saw quoted, uh, I think, on, on Monday saying, we had a momentum until this terrible tragedy. And it does look to me as if Brexit is more on the back foot, um, defending itself. The the ad you've spoken about, and the French have this expression, qui s'excuse s'accuse. Basically, if you are making excuses for yourself, you're effectively accusing yourself. Polls are beginning to turn uh, and the markets are, are up. So have we actually seen a turning point? Well, we we so we appeared to see a turning point. So that over the weekend, some polls uh, the polls had been going Brexit uh, direction, and then you had uh, some big swings over the last few days uh, back towards Leave. Now there seems to be a slight correction back in the other direction. So that I'd say this uh, race is very very close, and it's still very difficult to predict. Uh, you would expect that the fundamentals and tradition, the tradition of uh, referendums, would suggest that the undecided people in the middle will tend to break predominantly for the status quo, which would mean they would vote to remain in the European Union. Uh, and if that's the case, then uh, it probably will be a narrow victory for the Remain side. But the problem is that the polls are just so uh, strange and their methodology is so complicated because they've been 
uh, they've been overcompensating and uh, bringing, introducing all kinds of weighting systems to try to get the right answer. That nobody is really sure which polls are right and which are wrong. And the other big thing that we don't know is uh, the issue of turnout. One thing that has the Remain side worried is that uh, quite a lot of people voted by postal vote. And the postal votes, most of them were cast at a time when opinion was very much in favour of Brexit, or at least you know, the polls were going their way. And so the fears are that uh, on the Remain side that you're going to, you know, before you start counting uh, or before people start going into the polls on Thursday, you're going to already have a pretty big block of people who've already voted to leave. And so there'll be a certain disadvantage there where Remain is concerned. I think the question about turnout is who's going to be motivated more? Are those voters, the particularly those in the, the so-called C2 skilled working class voters who seem to be backing Brexit in a big way, are they going to be heavily motivated to go out and vote? The general view is that people who favour Brexit are more motivated to go out and vote. But the, the question that we have now is, has the Remain side con- uh, you know, succeeded in frightening its own supporters enough into ensuring that they will make sure that they will go out and vote on Thursday? And if they do, then they'll bring it over the line. But I would say it's still, uh, despite the shifts over the weekend and despite the, the new tone of the campaign, I think it's still uh, a very difficult race to call. And do we have a, a, a percentage figure for the postal vote? Do we know how big that is? It's, it's somewhere between, uh, it's estimated between 20 and 25% of the votes that they expect to be cast. Now, again, that uh, that could change because if the, the turnout is very high, and it could be very high, there are some indications that it might be just when you saw, for example, a lot of this rate, late voter registration that indicated an intention uh, on a, a, the part, part of a lot of people to vote. So if they, you know, if the uh, the turnout is very high, then obviously that proportion will be lower. Yeah. But I mean, if it is between twenty and twenty five percent, that's a lot of people. I wanted to talk a bit about David Cameron because I think it, it, he's played a very interesting, very much central role in the, in the campaign. There was a, a brief pause, if you like, in his role last week uh, for no more really than a couple of days when people said that he was frightening off potential Labour voters. But he's back now centre stage, who's participating in a major debate the other night. And and it has to be said with, with quite uh, some skill um, – is there something about Cameron particularly? Um, my, my, my suspicion is that he has a sense for uh, a, a group of voters that you might call Middle England that is is perhaps not very articulate, not very noisy, but that he does ha- have his finger on that, that particular pulse. I think that's right. I've just come back uh, from... Downing Street, where uh, outside Number Ten Downing Street, he made a statement which were, he said was a personal statement, and it was about why people should vote to remain in the European Union, and he was uh, directing it very much at the cohort of people that you're describing, uh, talking about security, talking about uh, thinking in terms of your own personal security and economic interest, but also that of your children and your grandchildren. And I think that he is a very good communicator. I think he's a very, very skillful politician. And I, and and the evidence really is that he does have uh, some kind of direct connection with a kind of a quiet, uh, middle of the road sort of English person, particularly, who is uh, is not really very extreme in one direction or another and probably doesn't. Uh, think about the European Union very often. If they do think about it, they probably don't like it that much. But uh, at the same time, they're not angry enough necessarily to risk their financial or economic well-being on it. 
And so I think that, uh, as you say, he was got out of the way for a bit. And that was partly, uh, you know, to get him out of the way. But also it was so that Labour would have a chance to reach its uh, audience directly. But now he's been brought back and uh, and he does have the authority as he kept saying uh, over and over again uh, over the last few days, I've been your prime minister for the last six years. And uh, today he was talking about what's happening, you know, the things I hear inside there, pointing to the windows of number 10 Downing Street. In other words, I understand some things, some terribly dangerous things about what's going on in the world and just take it from me. We're safer uh, with, uh, you know, cooperating with our friends in Europe. So I think that he is uh, an important figure. But having said that, the Labour vote Voters are very important. And if you look at the lineup that the Remain side has put on for tonight's debate uh, at Wembley Stadium, this big debate with six with six thousand people in the audience. The three people on the uh, on the leave side are exactly the same as the ones they had for the ITV debate, and that's Boris Johnson, Angela Leadsom, the business minister, and the Labour MP Gisela Stewart. But there's a totally new lineup on the uh, Remain side, and that's the London Mayor Sadiq Khan, the leader of the Trade Union Congress, uh, Francis O'Grady. And the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Ruth Davidson. Now, two out of those three, uh, Francis O'Grady and Sadiq Khan, are designed to appeal to Labour voters. And I think that does make clear just where the priorities of the Remain campaign lie in these final days of the campaign. And returning briefly to to Cameron, um, what is your sense of of, uh, him, um, his future, if if there's a no vote? And then what happens in Cabinet on Friday if there's there's a yes? I think if there is a no vote, despite uh, his protestations and various protestations of other people, I think his position is impossible. And uh, I think that he would be likely to announce his intention of stepping down and, uh, you know, once they have time to have an orderly succession in terms of having a leadership contest. Uh, there, There is some kind of a move on among uh, uh, Tory Eurosceptics to say actually he should stay on. But uh, but I think it would be very difficult and certainly it would be very difficult for him to lead the uh, the, renego- or the negotiations with the European Union about Britain leaving. So I think he'd be gone. Uh, if there is a Remain vote, it partly depends on uh, the scale of the victory. But uh, if there is a victory at all, he will really have had a remarkable string of victories. He'll have won the uh, two general elections, one outright. He'll have won uh, then three referendums, including two very important ones, the one on Scottish independence and this one. And uh, so although he he said he's going to leave office before the end of this parliament or by the end of this parliament, his authority will be enhanced. What we don't know is, is he going to have a revenge reshuffle, as some of his friends would like him to have, and so to punish those who have uh, stepped out of line and been a bit too harsh in what they've been saying on the other side of the debate, or as uh, perhaps wiser councils have, have been suggesting, that actually uh, he's going to have to bring everybody together. And uh, and uh, the fact is, I think that the Leave uh, campaign and the Leave people on the Leave side will be in such disorder if they lose that uh, many of them will be happy to come back and toe the line. So I think uh, I think if he wins, he's going to be in a very strong position. And if he loses, he's going to be gone. There were sort of hints that uh, Gove might actually pull, pull out of the cabinet. Well, yeah, there was somebody, he was asked this morning on the radio if, uh, you know, if this cost him his job, you know, would he be prepared to, you know, to lose his job for this? And he then said, oh, this is more important than 
anybody's job and you know which is kind of a standard line but he was uh, you know so and that was interpreted by some as saying he could go but i don't know but i mean i think in a way he'd be almost the last one that they would uh, they'd wish to uh, to get rid of i think there are, there's a bit more low hanging fruit where the uh, where the leave people in the cabinet are concerned notably perhaps the uh, northern ireland secretary Theresa Villiers. Thank you, Dennis. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Now to Boston and the Boston Globe's columnist and veteran reporter Kevin Cullen. We've been talking to Dennis Staunton in London about the change in tone following the killing of MP Joe Cox. The US election has also been affected by the killings, uh, killings on a much larger scale, obviously 49 dead in Orlando. But both sides uh, in the gun debate are utterly entrenched and Obama sounds in genuine despair, as he calls again for gun control. Is is Orlando playing significantly into the the election campaign? I mean, it's obviously dominated the news cycle for the last week. I think it's very different, though, say, than the last time there's a real serious push for gun control was after the killings in Newtown, Connecticut, in which 20 schoolchildren and six teachers and aides were killed uh, by somebody with an assault rifle. Uh, there was much stronger push for that. I, I, it was pretty obvious after this, particularly in an election year, that neither side would give. Uh, yesterday we saw in the Senate that uh, Democrats put forth their bill, uh, Republicans put forth their bill, and neither proposal was going to pass because everything went down along party lines. There's going to be no movement on an issue as controversial as, as gun control during a presidential election year. But, I mean, Patty, my view is they could have killed 500 people in that nightclub the other night and nothing would have changed on the national scale. Um, I, I hear from a friend in New York that there are even now, uh, as, as ever, conspiracy um, uh, nutcases who, who are denying it even happened. Yeah, well, you're always going to find that. I think the more disturbing thing is the the entrenchment on the side, the idea that uh, the fellow who did this, uh, you know, was at one time for over a year was on a no-fly list, that he was not allowed to fly in the United States, but there was nothing to prevent him from going in and buying the rifle that he used to kill all those people. The Republicans are not even willing to concede that. Uh, their, their response is interesting. They say that there are a lot of people who are falsely put on or incorrectly put on no-fly lists. So it's not fair to them that they would actually have to be delayed in getting a weapon. It's really extraordinary. The idea that somebody might have to wait and clear up a misunderstanding for a couple of days, uh, that, that they're, they're, it, it's more important that they immediately access a weapon that is designed only to kill people. Uh, it, but that's where we are in the United States. That's just the way it is here. Uh, Trump's handling of of the issue was was interesting. It was a sort of "I told you so" uh, response. His first response was, "You know, thanks for all the congratulations on me being right," which I I, I can't think of a, a poorer tone to give in in the course of a national tragedy. But it, you know, the the guy has narcissistic tendencies, and clearly narcissists view everything in the world as being about them, and that's how Trump viewed it. That was his first tweet that he was correct that terrorism would return to the United States, which is, is not exactly a prescient thing to say. Um, it, it Indeed. And um, he does seem to have an electoral base uh, which is willing to, to let him say anything, in fact. Although polls are beginning to show a, a gap between himself and Hillary Clinton again. 
No, no question. I, I think, you know, we're a week gone from the tragedy, and it's pretty clear that Trump handled it poorly. It's, it's, it's affected his numbers. I think most significantly, we just saw yesterday he uh, fired Corey Lewandowski, who was his campaign manager. You don't do that in the middle of a campaign when you're saying everything is going well, and then you fire your campaign manager. So I think, obviously, the Trump people are starting to realize that even if Trump will not moderate his tone, he has to be seen as doing something that's going to change the the, the 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 thrust of the campaign as it gets into it, as it heads towards Cleveland and accepting the nomination. We're entering a new phase of the of the genuine presidential uh, election post uh, the primaries. But his his organization appears pretty shambolic. He has serious cash shortages and virtually no teams in the swim the swing states. Correct. I mean, his his most effective campaign tool has been us. Uh, the news media, which has provided him with just, you know, unfettered access. Uh, he was the first, you know, camp, first presidential, uh, you know, candidate who was allowed to go on television by phone. That he, he couldn't be bothered to show up in the studio, but he'd, go, he'd call you on his cell phone and they'd put him on air. And he was just such a, you know, he's so good for ratings on, particularly on these cable shows that have to come up with 24 hours of content, if you can call it content that they'd put him on at any time, anywhere. And so he hasn't needed to raise money. But, you know, as we sit here today, uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton has $42 million in campaign funds and Trump has $1 million. Uh, that That never been a gap like that in presidential politics. But I must say, I must warn that, you know, everything we have said, every time we use the paradigm of conventional politics, um, Donald Trump upsets that because he does not fit that paradigm. He's been able to do things that no previous candidate for president has been able to do. To date, in fact, I gather he hasn't spent a single cent on, on TV ads and is effectively rewriting the, the playbook for presidential elections. No question. He hasn't had to spend any money on ads. I mean, we're all intrigued to find out what his ads might be. But, um, you know, he hasn't had to spend money. It's really... It, it's changed that whole compass, this whole idea that the you have to buy an election. It's always been sort of a perceived wisdom here in America that you had to have millions, if not a billion dollars, to run for president. And Trump has shown that's just not true. If you say controversial, crazy things, you will not have to buy campaign ads because they'll put you on the news shows 24-7. Well, the truth is, of course, he can afford to do it himself anyway. So there's an irony there. But what about the Republican Party? Have we seen an end to the Republican Party uh, grumpiness in the face of, of having to put up with Trump? Are they are they fully behind him now? Is Paul Ryan no. willing to support him? No, and we saw as recently as last week when um, Trump's response to Orlando was to renew his uh, call to bar the uh, immigration of any and all Muslim people. And, you know, obviously <laughs> a lot of people said, wait a minute, the guy that did this was born in New York, just like Donald Trump. If you follow Donald Trump's reasoning, they should bar anybody from New York. It, it, it made no sense whatsoever. And it was, uh, you know, you, so you had the specter of, of Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, having to de denounce and deny Trump again, the, you know, the second time of three times in the garden. I don't know when's the third time coming. But you no, know, every time they inch towards him, he says something that makes them back away and then we go through this process. It reminds me of the old James Brown routine in which he walks off the stage with the, with the, with the cape around him and he throws off the cape and comes back. 
Um, Trump just keeps saying thing, saying things that forces the mainstream GOP people, particularly led by Paul Ryan, to push him away. I suppose uh, he's going to announce uh, any day now that, uh, that that Brits should be banned from the United States after uh, some uh, rather mad uh, British citizen tried to take a pot shot at him. Well, I mean, by his theory, it would seem to me that no Irish person would be allowed to immigrate to the universe to the United States because he said that any country that has a history of terrorism should, you know, that their people from that, those countries should not be allowed to enter the United States. It it's really almost you know Orwellian in what he is proposing, and again, whenever he says things like that, it plays very well with the base, which is about ten percent of Americans, and the the ninety other percent of Americans are either scratching their heads or running for the hills. Yeah, uh, shuddering. Um, on the Democratic side, Hillary has now got a clear field and even mm-hmm. the tentative support of Bernie Sanders. Uh, her organization and finances are in good shape, shape uh, state too. Absolutely. I mean, she's obviously in command. But it's interesting because, you know, Sanders isn't going anywhere right now. I mean, he keeps getting a little push in the back by more recently President Obama before Obama announced his endorsement of Hillary Clinton. But... Uh, you know, as, as clear as the path is for Hillary Clinton into running into her convention, uh, Bernie, Bernie Sanders is not going anywhere. The, the left in this country wants commitments from her, and uh, Sanders is going to stay there right to the bitter end until they get commitments. And the commitment might involve some, some, some role for Sanders himself in the campaign. And do you, do you think that there's a, the left is going to get uh, Elizabeth Warren put onto the, the Hillary ticket? I don't think Elizabeth Warren wants to be on that ticket. I had a, you know, it's, every conversation I've had with her over the last year has indicated she doesn't want that. Uh, but and the other thing is she is being used very, very purposely as the sort of pit bull of the of the of the, of the Hillary campaign right now to attack uh, to attack Donald Trump. She has been using the language that would seem non-presidential uh, if if it came from the candidate's mouth. So she's clearly being used that way. That wouldn't that would not preclude her from being the um, the vice president nominee for 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 the Democrats. The problem with that is I don't know what it gains you. Hillary has to worry more about the the swing states that than than a place like Massachusetts that is so solidly Democratic. You know what does Elizabeth Warren give you? That idea that she is the bridge to all the Sanders supporters. I'm not quite sure. I think Bernie Sanders remains the bridge to the Bernie Sanders supporters. If he releases his people and says, I want you to vote for Hillary, and I think he will, Patty, in the end. I, I, I think that, that Bernie Sanders has said several times, we cannot allow Donald Trump to become president. And the only way he becomes president, in, in, in the view of anybody that understands the numbers here, is if that a large number of progressives sit on their hands and refuse to vote for Hillary. Uh, that's always been sort of a, a a a problem on the on the Republican side, particularly with evangelicals who were very lukewarm on Mitt Romney and very lukewarm on on John McCain. And when the evangelicals didn't turn out, that obviously helped the Democrats. This is the first time that there's a prospect of Democrats being so divided that a, a sizable number of Democrats would refuse to vote for the de- Democratic nominee. That's never happened 
in in U.S. in, in U.S. presidential politics. I've forgotten his name, but the the candidate who stood against Gore and Bush, the the, uh, the Green uh, Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader did Nader. did some he, of that, though, didn't he? He that that is actually a very good comparison in in terms of. The, the Nader voters would have been progressives um, by and large. And, and obviously, when we look back at that, they they handed that election to do, to uh, George W. Bush by doing what by standing in the first place. Listen, thank you very much, Kevin. You're listening to The Irish Times. In Venezuela, hunger stalks the country. Food is transported under armed guard. Soldiers stand watch over bakeries. The police have been firing rubber bullets at desperate mobs storming grocery stores, pharmacies and butcher shops. Tom Hennigan in Sao Paulo. In the last two weeks alone, more than 50 food riots, protests and mass lootings have taken place across Venezuela. What, what is going on? Well, essentially, the country is broke. Um, and that is because of the collapse in the price of oil over the last two years. Oil accounts for... 95% of all Venezuela's exports and the government um, in Venezuela of Nicolas Maduro, uh, which is the heir of Hugo Chavez, is uh, an extremely profligate um, spendthrift administration. It has to be because that's always how it's bought political support. And uh, the, the, the lack of dollars means that it cannot buy food. Venezuela has to import most of its food and that is... Um, mainly because uh, under Chavez, who came to power promising to diversify Venezuela's economy away from its dependence on oil, has actually intensified uh, the dependence on oil. And now that they're getting less per barrel, they've less money to go around, and um, they're unable to pay for basics like medicines, foods, and uh, things like toilet paper. So um, it's really, this is a function of the end of the oil boom and once again, a, a major South American commodity producer becoming overly dependent on one uh, product which it sells to the global market and then finding itself in crisis once that uh, product is no longer as valuable as it was. And this is a, a situation that has been going on in the region for centuries. So Venezuela is just the latest chapter in a very long story. It's a specifically, though, um, a Venezuelan story in the sense that this is the country with the largest oil reserves in the world. And the economy has been structured around, for example, cheap oil for, for people, for their cars and cheap uh, energy. Well, yes. Like when I was um, in Venezuela uh, a few years ago, I remember a friend bringing me to a petrol station to fill up his gas guzzler car. And he, you know, went, filled up the car and then went and bought a bottle of mineral water. And he had to pay more for the bottle of mineral water than he had to pay to fill up his car. So, um, it, you know, not only are they dependent on the oil sales, they're completely profligate with the, with the oil they have themselves, um, which is essentially a massive subsidy to the population. And it can no longer afford this. So they've had to raise oil prices. It's still very cheap to fill your car in, in Venezuela, but they've had to, to raise oil prices and they are desperately working with um, their partners in OPEC to try and get uh, the, the price back up to, to once again get the cartel to manipulate the market to get the price back up. But to try and diversify away from one product in a quick, um, short amount of time is just is too much, particularly for a, an administration that has proven itself to be very poor on execution of um, any kind of economic strategy. 
I, I was talking to a, a young Venezuelan woman uh, in Dublin uh, just just two days ago, and who, who said that her mother had told her not to come home because the situation sh- was so bad. There is real hunger now in the country. There's real hunger uh, in uh, poor sections of of the country, particularly in the slums around Caracas and other major cities. And there, for years, many poor residents were able to buy very cheap subsidized food in government-run supermarkets. Now, of course, the government doesn't have the money. Uh, It has huge debts with many of its suppliers, um, even so-called allies around the region. uh, Argentina and Brazil are now reluctant to send food shipments to Venezuela because they they haven't been paid for some time. and so there is there is a growing problem with uh, getting getting food and for some people for hunger. And there's a lot of stories of people, you know, you can pick up now cars, TVs, this sort of thing, uh, very cheap um, around Caracas as people are desperately selling what they own to try and, and, and buy food. Um, that is definitely one situation. But I think for most Venezuelans, I've been, I've been speaking with people there, people who have recently left Venezuela and um, come to, to Sao Paulo where friends have gone to Europe. And the big thing is the insecurity situation. Um, Venezuela was already one of the most violent societies in the world, uh, but now because people are getting increasingly desperate, uh, it is becoming even more so. And to give you just a, you know, a rough numbers, um, often are, are difficult to get a grasp of, but Venezuela roughly has the same population as Iraq. Um, but at the moment, um, despite half or a certain chunk of Iraq being being fought over and controlled by the Islamic State, um, Venezuela is probably the more dangerous place to be at the moment. So there's a lot of fear. There are a lot of people trying to get out. The Brazilian army recently held military exercises up on its uh, northern border uh, with Venezuela near, beside Guyana. And that was a reflection that there is a concern that there could, uh, if the situation doesn't stabilize soon, be a a mass exodus out of the country. Yes, I saw saw a poll saying that 87% of Venezuelans say they don't have enough money to buy food, which is really quite staggering levels. Now, the government is blaming all of this. Well, firstly, it's it's claiming, as I understand it, it doesn't really have a problem. But then it's blaming uh, any problems it does have on an economic war. Uh, on on uh, capitalism and the international and international big business, is that finding any echo at all? It, amongst the hardcore chavistas, it is, and there is still um, a segment of of the population that is able and um, that the government is able to mobilise to support it. Uh, you, we have to be careful in saying that they are true believers. In fact, what it is is many of them are just dependent on the state for what little income that, that they do have. Um, when you speak with people who work for government agencies or ministries in Caracas, and if you go into them, it's 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 like a party, political party headquarters. There's uh, party slogans, banners, pictures of Chavez and Maduro all over the walls. Um, in that environment, you know, many public officials are told that um, for Chavista rallies, they have to attend. But there is still a certain core um, that does back the government. But at this stage, uh, it's quite clear they, the government was routed in midterm elections at the end of last year. 
and polls show that an overwhelming majority now have lost all faith in President Nicolas Maduro to turn the situation around. The the reality, though, is that it's a presidential system, isn't that right? And the parliament has relatively little control over what the government does. And, and that's the huge problem. Um, and there is a recall effort underway there at the moment. Uh, the opposition needs to gather up enough signatures to force a recall vote on Maduro's term. The the government uh, and Maduro are, are saying that they will respect the constitution which allows this measure, but they're trying to make it incredibly difficult for the opposition to gather up the votes necessary. So the opposition said, we have the votes. Then the uh, the country's electoral uh, commission, which is totally dominated by by Chavistas, they came out and said, well, look, you know, there's many dead people in the you know this list here. Um, many people have appeared several times. We need to go through and vet this list. They have asked people who have signed up to the recall effort to go and validate their votes, um, and that has produced huge queues at centres where. Uh, the opposition claim anyway that the that the officials are deliberately making this effort as difficult as possible, forcing some people to wait all day just to validate their signature. And one of the one of the strategies that people um, assume that the government is doing is to try and, and slow down the recall vote as much as possible so that if it happens next year and uh, Maduro loses the recall vote, it then power then passes to his vice president Whereas if he loses a recall vote this year, then there's new presidential elections, which the opposition would be firm favourites to win. And Chavez was very much a creature of, of, of the army. Does Maduro have the same support in the army? No, and there have been rumours of potential coup attempts in Caracas in the last couple of weeks. Um, you see uh, Brazil and Argentina, um, the foreign uh, chancelleries releasing statements saying that they have faith in the institutions in Venezuela, which was read as a coded message to the military not to try and break what fragile democratic um, order that there is in the country. And there are elements within the regime that um, are military men or are influential with the military who are believed to be articulating that it is time to remove Maduro. Um, some of that would obviously be based on the fact that he is losing control of the situation, but others say that, well, you know, that the, the military has been heavily implicated in corruption and particularly drug trafficking um, under, under uh, Chavismo, and that the military, one, might want to protect whatever rackets they have going, or two, they might be afraid that a change of regime could leave their criminal activities exposed to better scrutiny than it is now. Now, neighbouring countries, you mentioned Brazil and, and, and Argentina. Uh, there has been attempts to, to build up some kind of a coalition of support for humanitarian aid, which Maduro has up till now refused uh, to accept. What, what is happening on that front? The, these are kind of... Um, efforts by uh, governments around the region to sort of express solidarity uh, in South America. The idea of solidarity amongst the countries is an idea, something that they've tried to, to build in recent years. Uh, Chavez was definitely at the forefront of that. Um, but really, other countries as well are having their own problems. Brazil is having its worst recession in decades. Argentina is in the doldrums. Colombia, which would be very afraid of a large um, exodus of Venezuelans should there be some kind of implosion in Venezuela. It as well has talked about 
trying to um, get some sort of aid together for Venezuela. But really, it, it looks at this stage, one would have to say, like a lot of talk um, and very little concrete action. Thank you very much, John. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Kevin Cullen and Tom Hennigan and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and producer John Casey. You can find our Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 